Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another podcast, New Books Network. My name is Camila Nunez, and I'll be your host for this episode. Today, I am joined by Cesar Ernesto Abadía Barrero, author of the book Health in Ruins, The Capitalist Destruction of Medical Care at a Colombian Maternity Hospital. It was published by Duke University Press in October of 2022. Now, Cesar Abadía Barrero is an associate professor of anthropology and human rights at the University of Connecticut. A medical anthropologist, his research integrates different critical perspectives in the study of how for-profit interests transform access, continuity, and quality of healthcare. He has conducted activist-oriented research in Brazil and Colombia, focusing on healthcare policies and programs, human rights judicialization and advocacy, and social movements in health. He is the author of I Have AIDS, But I Am Happy, Children's Subjectivities, AIDS, and Social Responses in Brazil, and Health in Ruins, book that we are going to be discussing further today. His current collaborative research follows decolonial proposals in health and well-being after Colombia's 2016 Peace Accord. So, Professor Abadia, hello, welcome, and thank you very much for being here with us in another episode for New Books Network, this time in English. Hello, Camila, thank you very much, and hello to the audience. Well, as I was saying, I'm very excited about this interview because your book, Health in Ruins, tells the history of approximately 60 years of a maternity hospital in Bogota called El Hospital Materno Infantil, intertwined with the process of it being constantly threatened in more than one way in relation with the process of the neoliberalization of health in Colombia, all this through a collaborative ethnographic study. And the book is structured in a kind of before and after the reform of 1993 from all perspectives, including education, administration, religion and miracles, adaptation, and all in all giving a recognition and mention to fundamental people and, and protagonists of this story. Uh, and now I know this is a very broad description of your work because your book has so many more levels and that is what we're going to be discussing throughout this interview. But I would like to start with some context for those listening that are not familiar with Colombia and particularly maybe Bogota's history or institutions or healthcare system. So let's talk about this Colombian maternity hospital, the Materno, which I hope is not a problem if we referred to it like that throughout the interview, since mm. it's how you refer to it in the book. So I ask this question particularly because I want to direct it towards the story and your experience with mm -hmm. El Materno, which you present to us in the prologue of the book. Mm -hmm. And I must say that from the very beginning of your book, the ethnographic style of narrative and approach to things start to start to make a connection with the reader. So from the very beginning, when you start telling this story that, well, I hope you are going to share with us later on, you start well, to make a connection and make it interest for the reader. So please tell me about how was it that you came to be related with El Materno and its great importance for Bogota and Colombia's healthcare system and training of professionals and how it came to be the main character of your book. Yes, um, thank you, Camila, for, for that introduction and for your first question that, yes, lets me um, get into the book. Um, Yes, uh, so I, I I came to El Materno, uh, and as I said there in the in the um, in the book, um, as a student at the National University in Colombia, I trained uh, as a dentist um, in the National University in Colombia. So I I, I started the book with the prologue, a little bit about 
my experience training in the clinical rotations, the, the El Materno, as it's uh, known throughout the book, but it's actually the name people refer to um, affectionately inside the, the university and inside the hospital. It's the maternity wing of perhaps the most legendary hospital complex in the country, which is St. John's San Juan de Dios. Um, this was um, uh, a religious aspect that was brought from Spain since colonial times. And uh, St. John's was the advocate for the sick. Um, and so in its name, the Spanish crown developed different institutions during colonial times all across Latin America to attend to the sick. Um, it was, of course, at those times, a mix of um, Spaniards who were coming to conquest, but also providing attention to local people um, at the time, of course, in indigenous populations and then the racial mixings of the mestizo populations. But So th this hospital's history is close to 500 years of history. Um, and it really has witnessed all the different changes in the country's history from colonial to independent works to Republican era. And is as a witness in terms of health, it really has uh, at some moments in history uh, served as the backbone of whatever concept of social welfare existed at the different times in history. So during colonial times, it was also a place where um, there were services for the poor and the destitute, for example. Um, there were um, aspects of water security for the country. They would host a range of institutions that would serve different uh, important aspects for the development of the country in, this, in its different moments in history. And then over time, it witnessed also all the different wars that yeah. happened, including independent wars, independence wars. And then um, as the country became a republic and, and the first sort of educational institutions to train physicians um, were established, these hospitals, these hospitals complex, El San Juan and El Materno, became sort of the training platforms for the new schools of medicine and schools of health in the country. So there was this symbiotic relationship between the hospitals and the national university, the main public university in Colombia, um, where then under the academic regency of the university, all the important scientific advancements in health and healthcare were developed thanks to that partnership um, between the hospitals and the university. So um, when I was trained as a dentist, late 80s and early 90s, I, I was trained at these hospitals. I had my, my rotation in maternity and neonatal health at El Materno. And so that's how I came to the hospital. And then 20 years later, I came back to it to start doing the research that ended up in the book. Yeah, that's great. I, as I was saying, I love that story that you presented it to us because uh, it's a very familiar way to describe how you started being a student and then you watch it transform in this whole political and social um, modifications that Colombia went through. And although the main character is the materno, as we've been discussing, it has been transformed and survives or navigates, we, we could say, 
the trials and tribulations of a neoliberal health reform that was enforced in Colombia in 1993. And this is the before and after that I was mentioning before in the introduction, with the characteristic of the privatization of healthcare. And I want to refer to something you mentioned in the podcast for the Spanish version of your book that I found very valuable and enlightening. You said that while reflecting and planning the book, you stood um, from a point of view of wondering what does the materno has to offer to academia in an international level and to global health? So why is it important to talk about economy and capitalism and healthcare when talking about the materno? How does one thing relate to the other? How did you came to build this argument? <laughs> yes, thanks again for, for that question, Camila. It is interesting, this project, and maybe we'll talk a little bit more about uh, the approach that went behind this book, but this project um, emerged out of the long tradition of Latin American social science, which is participatory action research tradition. So it's an activist-oriented approach to academia in which you act in solidarity, but also uh, in a political solidarity with whatever causes one gets involved in. So, you know, from the time as a student from the National University, you um, also get socialized into a constant practice of uh, advocacy and, and, and um, a deep care about the role of the public. And, and in Latin America, public institutions and the defense of, of public principles around citizenship are uh, very important in our structuring. So this this project really started not with any idea of a book in mind. Of yeah. course, it was just a project that started when I went back to Colombia after being trained as an anthropologist, as, as I, I did my PhD in anthropology. Then I went back to Colombia and then I, I, I started to hear the news and I knew I graduated right before the privatization law uh, in in 1993, and I came back in 2005. Um, so it was, you know, like 12 years into the reform. And at that time, uh, already the dilapidation of the public healthcare infrastructure of the country yeah. was taking over the news all the time. So you would hear one hospital closing down, so their hospital in a strike, problems with the payments of physicians, and so on. The main hospital, San Juan de Dios, the main hospital complex, which is actually a series of uh, pavilions and a main hospital big building with all the specialties that was the training center for, for healthcare professionals at the National University had already been closed down in the yeah. year 2000. But El Materno was able to survive. And I explained in the book a little bit of, of why it, it was able to survive. Right? Like there was like a, uh, the director at the time got to separate the administrations between the main hospital complex at El Materno. And so he was able to um, to remain open for several more years. Um, finally, it, it did close down, but but for many years it was it remained open. Yeah. Um, so when I when I went back and I saw this piece of news, I was immediately drawn to to being a part of that history. And I said, I thought to myself, the new tools that I had gained from anthropology as a social scientist were perhaps the perfect tools. To, to get inside the history and to trace it and to exert solidarity, but also to apply those social science um, theories and methods to capture that history and make sense of it, right? Yeah. In a sense, I, I, I went from dentistry to anthropology because I wanted to gain tools from social sciences to understand the privatization of the country. So this was 
one of the ways in which I felt I could be useful and get involved. And so I started to go to the hospital and I did several smaller projects, but just acting in solidarity with the professors, with the students and with the workers that were resisting the privatization efforts. They were resisting constant threats of closures, as you mentioned, the defunding, the drastic defunding of the hospital out of an unfair competition between the newly created for-profit infrastructure, both insurance insurance companies and for-profit clinics that actually they went into a process of vertical integration, meaning that they would you know, hire their own clinics and pay. So there was like an extremely unfair competition going on. At the same time, these hospitals came also with a long history of labor struggle. So they had uh, workers with, um, that, that had fought for many years for labor rights. So they were having relatively good conditions and the new hospitals that were being created took advantage of neoliberal law reforms to really have a minimum, uh, a minimum group of personnel yeah. treating patients. So the the ratio of, you know, healthcare personnel to patient ratio was totally off. They were underpaid. They were overexploited. And these hospitals, El Maternon and San Juan, were not adopting sort of that mentality. So there were many problems that made um, that history in terms of economics and administration more complex uh, than when it's oftentimes assumed. Uh, in terms of hospital administration and health economics. But I think to now answer your question about <laughs> um, what, how did I come up with that idea of what, what was important for El Materno to tell academia and, and to tell a global audience. Yes. Um, that was when one of, of my, my former professors and mentors um, in the U.S. Uh, and, you know, invited me to write the history, had presented like a paper about this research, and he is the academic editor of this series at Duke University, University Press. And he told me that, you know, if I if I decided to write a, a whole history of the book, that I should consider uh, his uh, series. And and so I I I thought, you know, these these uh, these presses are very international in scope. It um, is these yes. presses, right? Exactly. So so you you do want to think big, to think about. Uh, what is important about this hospital? What is important about this struggle? What's important about these changes in in healthcare reform and and, and the, the privatization law? And what's important about that history that can not only give credit to all this history and to pay tribute to the hospital and the workers and the students and the professors who were the ones keeping the hospital alive. But also, what what do these hospitals, right? Because the Materno is not the only hospital that is undergoing privatization in Colombia, Latin America, or around the world, right? It's not unique, but it's singular, as I as I draw from another researcher at the end to mention that yes, each particular history has singularities and happens yeah. in particular ways. But by no means it's an isolated history of world political economy, right? Like, privatization reforms are are going on around the globe. And so many hospitals and workers around the globe are are going through similar processes of the funding, losses of labor rights, diminishing quality of care, and the the emergence of the significant 
private sector, both in terms of healthcare delivery, private sector in healthcare delivery has always existed in many countries, but also how the system's gone financialized through insurance schemes. That is what the book explains, what does layer of transforming a country through a for-profit insurance scheme, um, how does that affect and transform not only healthcare networks, but also the deep meaning of what these traditions of public health care represent for Latin America. I love that. And I love the way that you uh, mentioned it. You said, I was drawn to be a part of that history, but I like that that history is not only telling the story from the institutional or administration perspective, but also these that you have mentioned before is that... um, Exert solidarity, uh, talk about the struggle, pay tribute to the hospital and its workers. So I think that's very important. And something that I can uh, take from this, from what you've said on your book, is that health, talking about health does not exclude from talking about economics or morals or research or social action. So that's something that I took from the book that I really like. Now, following this bit of introduction, um, it is worth saying that this theoretical framework that you built for this book to tell these stories is both complex and somehow the obvious choice. Like Mm. there was no other way in which you could tell this story, or at least that's how I perceived it, um, following these that I have mentioned. Um, It is especially clear for me when you say that, and I'm quoting from the book, the materno is an example of a very particular subordinate epistemology of medical care that continues to exist without infrastructure. So please tell us about the concept or the notion of these epistemologies of care and how that ends up being woven into the discourse of resistance and uh, adaptation within these capitalist and neoliberal approaches to health, which we have discussed are just not two points apart from the story, but are intertwined woven, as I was saying. Right, right. Perfect. Yes, yes, Camilla. So, yes, let's start by by um, acknowledging the positionality. So Latin America has um, a long tradition in social science of critical, um, critical approaches to social science issues um, in terms of health. We can think about that as the political economy of health or the tradition in Latin America, Latin American social medicine tradition, um, that it's very important in that it bridges um, critical perspectives around healthcare, healthcare delivery, public health, healthcare policy with critical social science. So I was also trained in that. And in anthropology, um, you find critical medical anthropology, which uses um, the primarily the political economy of care, but other frameworks that link power with issues about health experience or health delivery. And so to me, it was very interested coming from um, clinical background yes. to an anthropology background that because of that training in social medicine, I was able to sort of navigate in my first years the range of um, social science theory and anthropology theory and ethnography that I was, of course, not familiar with. But because of that tradition of critical perspectives in Latin American social medicine, I was able to, to grasp um, the new knowledge that I was I was. Um, receiving um, during the PhD, and, and that's how I make sense of it. So it's in a sense, it's, it's the bridge of two traditions um, in terms of, of concepts and theory, in which both of them advocate for understanding 
health and experience not only as biological phenomenon, but really, as you were saying, right, like the contextual aspects in which history, political economy, power mechanisms, state infrastructures, administrations, bureaucracies, all those kinds of uh, of uh, phenomena and historical developments influence the ways in which healthcare is delivered, the ways in which healthcare training is um, yes. also promoted, the ways in which medical schools uh, operate, right? Uh, they are not outside the forces of capital, for example, the forces of empire, the forces of the pharmaceutical industry, that all just start understanding that, that it truly permeates what medicine is about, what healthcare delivery is about, and also what the experience of patients will be about as you seek care and start interacting with facilities. So that's all embedded into the training of medical anthropology. And when I followed the history of the book, going back to what we were talking about, that long history of really relationship with the national university, and for me as a graduate of the university, um, one of the things that I, I couldn't wrap my brain around was how could a country let go of these institutions, right? Sure. Not only because of the of the healthcare need of the country and the many hospital beds that they had, the neonatal intensive care unit, one of the landmark programs, the Kanguro Care program that originated at El Materno, and it's a world-renowned program that has saved thousands of thousands, if not millions of lives of, of premature and and low birth weight babies, newborns, um, how could a, hosp- a country let go of that, defund it and close it down? But at the same time, it's the main academic training platform for the most important institution of the country and its health schools, the national universities. So I, I started and by following the history, by being with the people, being with the professors, being with the patients, being the, with the workers, I, I was really uh, an, an important need to understand that historicity within the context of the meaning of a university teaching hospital. And so when you do that, you immediately are forced to think about those traditions, not only of care, but of medical training. Sure. And then because of that, and, and if we zoom in a little bit, for example, in the kangaroo care program as, uh, you know, the most, perhaps the, the, the best example of this epistemology of medical care, it means that healthcare is not the same in all places in the world. You know, medical training can be the same. Um, medical training from the West, what we consider the West, right? Like in, in the origins on European modernity, it's a science-driven um, kind of art and provision of services, right? Medicine draws from biological sciences primarily. And, and here we have um, clinicians at the maternal, professors and um, you know, medical school students, residents in, in pediatrics, in neonatology, in gynecology, also being trained with modern medicine, and yet they would practice modern medicine differently. They would be very attentive and very aware about the political context of the country that we also talked about, right? They were part of that 
public institutions advocating for a public approach and for the importance of medicine to be able to respond to the most pressing needs of the country, right? So if at some point you have an incredible high rate of maternal mortality or neonatal mortality, then the physicians at the time, late 60s, early 70s of the 20th century, were thinking about what can we do to improve survival rates of these newborns that are you know, getting bored with very low birth weights, and they primarily die out, died at the time out of hypothermia. Incubators were just being developed. Some of them arrived to El Materno, but these physicians started to wonder if human bodies wouldn't have the same capacity as marsupials to provide care for their low birth newborns. We know that, you know, baby Joyce and other marsupials are born like a really premature in an almost fetal-like stage without fur, they are blind, they are all these kinds of things, but they are... They are completely defenseless. They are defenseless. Out to the world to be just taken care of completely. Exactly. And what takes care of the world is the pouch of the marsupials, right? Like that, and that it has four nipples in the case of kangaroos and the babies, you know, like finish their grow extra uterus. And so this, this, um, you know, and that's the way that it's very smart to think about this, the kinds of medicine and the kinds of training, because only when you have an eye towards nature, but also when you have an eye towards inequalities, towards your local needs, towards the scarcity of resources, right? It's not that you can put all low birth weight babies in incubators because you don't have enough incubators. And at the same time, El Materno was the referral unit of the country. So you had a lot of indigenous women traveling long distances, farmers from all sorts of conditions of the country. And so if you put babies in incubators, they had the problem of child abandonment. And so they they were they were noticing that that wasn't going to work. So would there be a possibility to create something, a strategy in which the families themselves, initially the women, but later the fathers and other members of the family, could take care of their babies at home? And so they developed this kangaroo technique, which is just so simple and basic. It's Skin to, for those who don't know, it's the skin-to-skin contact, right, yeah. between the low birth baby, and you carry the baby in your chest for 24 hours a day, and they can breastfeed on demand. And that simple technique proved to be as efficient as incubators. So what the book tells is that when you privatize and you close down these hospitals, and again, El Materno is not the only example yeah. in the world, all the academic units, university hospitals around the world affiliated with traditions of care are producing a kind of knowledge and a kind of practice medicine that is very specific and produces innovations that are particular to your history. And so the argument is that it's not just privatizing healthcare and privatizing public healthcare, but really ruining these rich traditions of epistemologies of care, the ways in which medical care is conceived, is understood, is practiced, is taught, it's inserted into politics and economics, and that makes for a whole tradition of different kinds of understanding, learning, and practicing medicine. And El Materno is one example of those. 
I yes, completely agree. And I was just about to say because you mentioned that this kangaroo care or this kangaroo skin skin strategy is so basic, but at the same time is so powerful and is so efficient that it I think it's a very good example of what we're trying to communicate here. Because these epistemologies are not just about the healthcare, but how it adapts. And I think that what you're saying is very true. This privatization and these conflicts are going around Latin America in general. But I think that the specificity of the history of El Materno is about how these examples come to life and how these examples and how these study, these um, these courses and testimonies and everything are very good on telling the duality, but also the the disappearance of those boundaries between public and private and how one thing being private can interfere in uh, the adaptation, the survival. And also something that I found very interesting is the conversation between biomedicine and the other epistemologies of care, but also other knowledges and other traditions that feed into that. So that's what I wanted to discuss now because in the building and in enforcing and defending because it 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 takes a lot of struggle and force and action to defend these counter hegemonic epistemologies uh, we find that there are there are might what might be called contradictions or maybe not contradictions in el materno where at the same time it deals with biomedicine and privatization but also redefines care from a human or integral perspective and fights for its uh, surviving and paying of the workers because here the workers are main characters in all this. So I was I wanted to talk to you about these contradictions, if we can call them contradictions, mm -hmm. and how that related to the proposal that you have in the book about generating or contemplating options, alternatives, and possibilities to complement biomedicine, and how that is a discourse that is been taking force in Latin America, how you say with uh, activist research, but also social medicine, social determination of health and all these kind of uh, perspectives. Yes, yes. Thank you for that question as well, Camilla. Yes. Uh, so I, I learned right from from the professors and from being at the hospital that, yes, there is there is a tension there. Yes. Right. Uh, yes. Let's go back to the example of the incubators and the kangaroo yes. mother care, right? So, so yes, you accept um, and acknowledge biomedicine strengths, the you know the modern science, what it has to say, and and you know it's true. Babies um, would need modern scientific tools offered by uh, what we can call the medical industrial complex, right? Like there are uh, 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 technologies that are part of global markets of biotechnologies, um, including pharmaceuticals as well, that are beneficial, right? So, so you cannot argue against modernity because it's what we do in the everyday life, right? Yes. Like the, the, the neonatologists, which are the specialists who take care of these babies, as one of the professors explained to us two weeks before and two weeks after the baby's born, right? That's the, the emphasis of their subspecialty um, in pediatric, pediatric neonatology. They, they rely in all the modern tools to, to make sure that the babies are well cared and that they can 
you know, they can provide the best possible care that these babies need and this critical moment in life, right? Like it's very crucial for survival, right? Yes. It's one of the times in which our, our bodies, humans and mammals are most vulnerable um, and, and, you know, less resilient and, and very immature. So it needs all the help that it, it can provide. But at the same time, this, uh, this school of thought this, you know, that draws in this epistemology of care also understands, for example, that modern tools and scientific tools can be very aggressive and very violent in that there is a lot of intervention. There is a lot of intervention and immediate intervention. So just as in, in the kangaroo care, there is a constant negotiation of trying, perhaps not so much contradictory, but I would rephrase that as a negotiation, right? right. As to how much intervention with modern tools you need mm-hmm. versus how much our own bodies can do for themselves since our bodies have the possibilities to recover, to produce right like the hormones, the nutrients, to create res- immune responses to our bodies are also a very you know sophisticated, complex system uh, that it's all the time in process of growth and reparation and you know searching for strategies. So they accept modern science, but they don't accept it at face value. And there is a very interesting and critical negotiation with what is coming from what we consider to be hegemonic centers of knowledge, Europe and, and the US, right, in terms of what to do and in terms of what newborn babies, right, like low birth babies and premature babies would need for survival. And, and as they created the kangaroo care program in the everyday practice around many kinds of issues, there is this idea of of care, epistemology of care that you were mentioning, right? That not only challenges a little bit what scientific medicine would say, but also understands that what we need for survival and health is not just technology. So what happens with everything else that we need? We need our families to be around. We need some sort of, you know, support, emotional support, but also economic support, but also a range of things that are very important for a successful, integrative and comprehensive model of care. And then I think when privatization arrives, which is down with the other side of the conflict, then there is more of a direct conflict, right? Because with the financialized Healthcare systems, when when for-profit insurance companies uh, take over healthcare payments and in the same line, healthcare delivery of what can be done and what cannot be done, then we start seeing how these epistemologies of care are forced to um, to provide a kind of care that is not up to their standards, right? Yeah. And and I think around the world. If people are listening to this podcast, we can see many examples of, you know, denials of service. You know, I'm gonna, not going to pay for this or the, your insurance doesn't cover this. Oh, that's not really medical care. That's not really necessary. You can do it, but I won't pay for it and things. And that's the logic of the insurance industries, right? Like the insurance industries operate under that mentality that you have a limited 
coverage and that your packet includes just what it's covered by the policy and nothing else. And that nothing else is very problematic because you are living out incredibly important things that are fundamental for these schools of thought and these epistemologies of care um, to be able to provide the best possible care that people need. And so when the insurance um, reform happened, the privatization law happened, then we do see that process of how the funding really becomes an aggressive curtail of um, of these schools to to continue to be happening, and and that's where uh, we can see that this is a different kind of violence, right? Like, and I resort to to theories of violence to show these kinds of violence that are very subtle, right? Like we can we can think about the funding. Yeah. What happens when you defund a hospital? Yes, you cannot provide these kinds of care, but what happens if it's a university hospital and you cannot longer train people with that? And then families who come for care no longer receive that long tradition of history, right? And that is the kind of violence that erodes the substrate of what these long historical traditions of care are about. And that's how... Uh, that's why I call I call the book Health in Ruins because it's that violence it's exerting that process of ruination, right? You are ruining not only the infrastructure but all the emotional care and the labor and the training and the teaching and all that history that was possible because of that epistemology of care is what you're ruining for history and and for life for all the lives that no longer are going to be able to be part of that tradition and receive those kinds of training and of care. So you are ruining really a history of health care for a particular country and for a particular region. Yeah, completely. And it also, I mean, I want to dive in later on on training of medical professionals and other healthcare professionals, but for now, I just want to stay in this argument about how privatization enforces and puts other priorities on healthcare that once again ignores sometimes the particularities or uh, yeah the particularities of every local scenario, specifically as you were saying in Latin America, where we have a very complex and historical tradition of intertwining discourses and healthcare, for example. Well, the these medical complex of El Materno and El San Juan de Dios, they have an influence of uh, Christianity and religion, but also these discourses of pluralism and medical pluralism and all the kinds of people that El Materno uh, deals with and takes care of are very important to integrate into this discourse too. As you were saying, it's not only privatization, it's not only reducing money, but what does that reducing of money, what consequences does it have in the pop, in the population, in the professionals? Because sometimes one of the complaints that we hear here in Colombia about medical um, healthcare is we go and it's 10, 15 minutes with the doctor and it's like, mm-hmm. there you go, bye. That's all the time we have. And sometimes we blame on the doctors or the professionals, but we have to understand that that comes from a well, cultural, political, historical, privatized system that doesn't allow another type of care that is needed if we want to live a healthy, like fully integral, as you were saying, integrative and comprehensive life of healthy life. So to tell this story and everything, uh, we were talking about that you 
carried out a collaborative ethnography. And we were talking about also that you mentioned before in a previous interview that you wanted to include the voice of the protagonist. So please tell us about how this collaborative ethnography was built, how, how was it carried, and how did you see that it was necessary to make a collaborative ethnography to tell these stories about Del Matema? Yes. Um, so the, the, there is also, a, um, and, and you will see that I refer a lot to the Latin American traditions because yes, yes that's yes, that's yes. my training. And it's very important. Right, exactly. And that was, that was another thing that uh, this professor, Mike Fisher, Uh, who invited me to write for for the Duke series told me that it was it was absolutely critical for global audiences to understand these also different traditions of how um, how academia is produced and social science is produced. I also had a very dear professor in my dental school training yeah. um, that um, taught us the group of of uh, the cohort that we were studying at the time on the traditions of participatory action research. So we would do our community health uh, rotations under this framework. So for us, it was it was the way we were trained to, um, to see processes and to interact and to collaborate. So when I started to work at Ed Materno, I, I started to bring, you know, people and friends yeah. and, and students and Um, that that you know we were we created a research group. Um, it was called Critical Medical Anthropology Research Group, right? So I would bring a lot of the people to to be part of the history, to also exert solidarity, to bring new and creative ideas um, to the struggles that um, that were happening at El Materno, right? So it was always with this idea of collaboration of. Um, of activist-oriented research, of figuring out what else to do, and then you start um, playing with the tools of research and science, right? Like, are they helpful? In what ways can they be helpful? Um, many times we were acting not as researchers, right? But just as friends, as colleagues, as political allies, and, you know, and that's kind of the ways in which this, um, this work evolves all the time. But also recognizing, and that's the other tradition in, in collaborative research and participatory action research, that really the, the protagonists of the story are the ones who not only have to tell the stories, but that the one that they are experts in what is going on. Yeah. And the ones that are able as well to theorize and co-theorize about what's happening, right? So there was a constant effort as well to, to run by them and in the constant dialogic relationship to figure out what was going on, right? Like they were the experts in the history of the hospital, the expert on the kinds of things they had produced, uh, the strategies for survival they had implemented, right? Like so, so everything was sort of coming from them, but doing a serious acknowledgement and credit to their knowledge and history. So even though I start the book, for example, with that preface of my story, yes. I, I I disappear from the book, right? <laughs> totally after that, yeah. you know, like I no, I'm no longer there because actually um, when I when I started to write the book, I had a lot of field notes and we had collective field notes of all the events and all the activities and all the notes we had taken. We had a, some interviews, but at some point I I said. But it would be wrong if I am the one who tells the story. So I, 
I went back to all the people and knowing what had happened out of the many years of being with them, I, I did very targeted interviews to ask them to feel the story of the book, right? Like what I was already imagining as the possibility of this history of the hospital. I wanted to have that history from them. And so I did a very targeted interview with the landmark points and, and things that were happening that I knew uh, from the history, but I wanted them to tell them in their words and from their perspective how it had happened. And I think that's that's one of the things I like the most about the book is that it's really their voices. It's their tribute. It's their history. Um, the book celebration that we did in Colombia at the National Museum was a, a fantastic and beautiful event because I invited them to be part of the book celebration and invited them to be in the panel and to tell us a little bit more about the story. So I think in a sense, this is also a book for them, for the protagonists, for the professors, the workers, um, the patients, even at the book celebration, several patients and former patients came um, to, to be celebrated and to be celebrated in a book format. And so I think this this, this a book is for them as well. And, um, and they were there and they felt that they owned that very painful history that at many times they, they were um, ostracized from society. They were um, accused of being the ones uh, creating problems yeah. and not letting, right? Like, and so it was a validation of their history in some sense. And I think that was also a very important part of our collaborative research to, to let them tell the story from their side and to acknowledge their presence and their struggles. And I think that was something that they considered very valuable. And they were very thankful for for the research process to have allowed for this book to happen because it does contain their story from their perspective. Sure. And I think it's indeed very valuable because, because while you're reading the book, as I was saying at the beginning, the ethnographic narrative and even maybe the chronic style of narrative, it's very um, eye-catching. So you start to feel like you belong in the community and that you start even recognizing some of the characters because you have a very long list of characters that you want to recognize. So you take the voice of this nurse or this doctor or this particular person or patient and you start to intertwine that 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 story. So I think that that's very valuable and it adds to this discourse of this objective that you wanted to attain with the book. And as you were saying, it also uh, tacks into the Latin American traditions of academy, which since we know Latin America is a place of struggles and we like to raise our voices, it's very important for us to be heard. So this book is also that. And I think it shows in the way that you are telling us this story here in the interview, but it also tells in the book because you start with this intention of solidarity of understanding what's going to happen, but also giving voice to the hospital, to the patients, to the professionals, to the students. But also then, and you mentioned this, it's also an activist research that's also a very Latin American tradition uh, and call for action. So please tell us a bit about these actions or um, resistances that were built from this research group that you formed and from the book itself. Because I know that there are some uh political things that were happening 
while you were writing the book. So tell us how these ethnography and collaborative work and struggle and Latin American struggle uh, showed in this activism that you were building. Definitely. I mean, when, when while we were doing the research, this research started, or I started to go to the hospital in 2005, as I mentioned before, 12 years after the reform after. was and was already um, signed and established. And so we were talking about, and, and then I continued going to the hospital until around 2018, 2019, perhaps were the last interviews um, that I conducted. Um, so we are talking about this, you know, let's say a decade of um, public debate around the healthcare reform. Um, and, you know, at, at that time, even... Um, the Colombian healthcare system in the year 2000 was credited by the World Health Organization as the best um, healthcare system in the world, um, which in in a, in a it, this was an article that then it was um, really highly debated and yeah. critical perspectives showed how it was really biased because. Some of the people who were behind this were former World Bank officers and all the promoters of the privatization who were tweaking health econometrics to show supposedly that in terms of um, financial solidarity, uh, meaning that the rich pay more and contribute more than the poor, the Colombian healthcare system was you know, excellent and that the rate of coverage was one of the highest in the world and all these kinds of things. So it was of course, a very uh, uh, politicized debate in which you had uh, two camps, the ones promoted privatization and the ones promoting, promoting uh, a, you know, a, public, um, a public health understanding of what healthcare and healthcare delivery should yeah. be about. Um, we're talking about a moment in which with neoliberalism, um, you know, that, that comes from from before, right? We're, we're talking about late 70s, 80s, the first sort of concepts of neoliberalism came into place and then they got um, sort of materialized in a specific um, legislative reforms around the world, tackling labor, tackling um, the privatization of different kinds of um, sectors, right? State-owned sectors and, and, and the flexibilization yeah. of the economy and all the kinds of things that we know and associate now with with neoliberal free market sort of global yes. policies. And then health came into the picture uh, sort of like a little bit later because it was a sector that uh, that actually only the, the healthcare system in the United States um, had this kind of very individualistic insurance and for-profit system, right? Like we know European countries have a, a strong welfare state, um, we know that the healthcare system in the UK, although it's now undergoing privatization, the national health system is one of the landmarks in terms of uh, uh, of healthcare infrastructures, right? Uh, that are um, that are publicly centralized um, in in its um, in its conceptualization and organization. Um, and so, so we have right, like all these different kinds of traditions of thinking about healthcare yeah. delivery within the public sector. And then you have this push for privatization. So in Colombia, the debates were very, very heated. Um, and so the research that I was conducting with the Materna and with other projects 
was also part of research of other members of the Latin American social medicine tradition that were showing through many different research projects and studies the inadequacies of privatization, the problems in terms of quality of care, on delivery, the falsity yeah. around insurance, right? like having insurance doesn't mean having access to health care. That was one of the first things we did, the dilapidation of healthcare labor and what the conditions of new labor um, were happening, the conditions of medical training. So the, the, the El Materno came with that story and El Materno came also to present to the country that historical tension between being credited as a modern hospital that the whole country should be proud of um, because of its legacy of, of significant and um, advancements and training, and at the same time being accused of that um, relic of the past that could that couldn't adapt to new market logics. And so it is in that kind of thing that there was a lot of activism around protecting labor rights. We did a lot of work with the workers at the hospital, um, protecting the rights through judicial mechanisms. We did a lot of work trying to protect the hospital because it's a, a patrimony. So we did also some legislative work around that kind of protection. Um, and, and those were sort of the main aspects in which um, the activism was evident besides the, the solidarity that we were yeah. exerting with those who were fighting. Yeah, that's great. And uh, well, you can tell, you can tell that uh, history about El Materno, it's being transformed and transform, transforms itself the view on healthcare and what citizens can demand uh, of the state and of healthcare system should be. Now, I want to deal a bit of, uh, of our interview with uh, education and the training because I have a particular interest in this in the training of healthcare professionals in Colombia. And well, we have discussed this, El Materno is fundamental in the training or well, is, was, mm -hmm. there's still a debate, <laughs> um, in the training of medical professionals and healthcare professionals. Uh, so tell me, please, about this. How did your experience as a student and how does this ethnography deal with the students and their protest and their need of a university hospital to be trained in? And what is the main characteristic of the people who is trained there and works there in the materno? That is also a very natural or very charismatic characteristic of this hospital. Yes, um, and that's a, a fantastic one too. To end and to think, and actually the last chapter of the book, yes. uh, chapter seven, it's it's about that, right? Like the, all the changes and shifts. So, and it was it was part of that beautiful story because I when I went back to interview these eminent uh, professors, right, like the the most important neonatologists of the country and and gynecologists and and pediatricians, right, that were trained in El Materno. Many of them were trained at La Nacional yeah. at the time, so it was it was also fascinating to hear from them. Right, like at the beginning of the book, the first chapter tells a lot about how they came to be trained as as physicians and came to be trained as specialists in El San Juan de Dios in El Materno at La Nacional. Some of them were trained at different universities, but they came to El Materno to work, and and they became part of yeah. of this school. And so to contrast their training, their years, um, 
what I went through myself, right? Like I, I was able to piece together also their, their narratives because I was also part of, um, you know, rounds and, and part of, of training. So I was, I was familiar uh, with my own history of what they were saying or what the hospital was like um, at the time, you know, with problems, right? Like the, the hospital, the, the book is not apologetic. And, you know, that yeah, it, it, like it, it presents, there were a ton of problems with the former healthcare system. Yes. There were problems of corruption. There were problems of finances. Those problems are not new. They did not start with neoliberalism, but they were changed by neoliberalism. And that's what perhaps you were saying about like the, host- the history keeps on changing, yes. right? So we are not talking about an idyllic past versus a horrible present. We're talking about, yes, a lot of problems, but how that privatization reform did create a drastic change in the history, right? Because it leads to the end of these institutions. Uh, But that's, again, to reiterate, that's not to say that there were not problems before in training. Uh, We know medical institutions in terms of training have are very paternalistic in their um, orientation. You have a lot of microaggressions and problem against, you know, female students. You have horrendous the, the power dynamics between different professions and different like status in the professions. It's very, 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 yes, very, no, very strict, right? Like, however, El Materno had something that I do also speak about in the book, right? Because it's a maternity hospital, perhaps it draws people to a, a more horizontal level of care and to the emotionality around, you know, pregnancy and delivery and the welcoming of a new life does create in these institutions, right, a, a different everyday dynamics, right, that is not as harsh, even though the hierarchies and the, the power yes. dynamics uh, remain. Uh, so, but, but what happens in the training and education is that from this very comprehensive look under the academic regency of the national university, right? Like, so the training and the dynamics around care and delivery that happened at the hospital were very much a part of whatever the professors at the national university uh, conceived as important for training and care. When you lose that academic regency, when you lose that possibility to direct and orient what medical training and healthcare delivery should be about, and you have for-profit institutions determining packages of cost-effective interventions that are going to be paid or not paid, then your, your, your status and the knowledge you have is no longer valid. Uh, and so you can imagine how this started to transform significantly um, the kinds of activities the students could witness, could do and could not do, the, because the kinds of activities that patients, the kinds of healthcare activities that patients would receive would depend very much on whatever the insurance company was going to pay or not pay, right? Yeah, and and sure. the book has a, um, a long chapter, chapter four, explaining all these convoluted mechanisms um, around bills and how bills end up really dictating what can happen and not happen, although the hospital resisted as well and tried to do things even if they were not going to be paid by them. But there is so much what you can do when, you know, when you don't have resources, the state is no longer giving you resources, but you have to compete in the market 
and then the insurance companies is glossing your bills. That means not paying your bills out of technical problems. Yeah. And then when they approve the bills, they don't pay them, right? So, so you start having that problem. You start having an everyday dynamic that it's also more consumed by the bureaucracies yeah. and administrative demands than by the time that you can spend on care. So you have also a problem there and you have uh, a conflict in which um, people can no longer dedicate themselves and all the time to, to caring for people. And so the last chapter explains what it is to be trained right yeah. now in a for-profit system with several voices from professors and from students showing really the limitations, the incredible limitations that they are receiving in their training. And that really relates with a crisis that we're experiencing in the quality of training um, that physicians are receiving because they are being trained under these huge constrictions of restrictions of what the health insurance companies dictate as possible. So they are right, like even even though they are learning that, you know, from theories and yes. from readings that this should be done this way or that way, in practice, they are very limited in what they can do and they are very frustrated yeah. with the outcomes in their patients, of course. That's true. Thank you very much. Now Uh, we are reaching the end of our podcast, but I do want to ask one last question for you and is for you to tell me what are the most unexpected reactions or feedback that you have received about this particular book, both in Colombia and in the United States? Because I think it's worth saying that this book has been published in Spanish and in English almost at the same time. So tell me about these responses or feedback that you have received. Yes, great. Thank you. And I and I did make a point of of having the book translated and, and being yeah. published as soon as possible in Spanish. And and yes, the two versions, the Spanish and the English, came almost at the same time. So I was yeah. very, very pleased with that. Um so the book is having um, you know, different audience, different readings about it. Uh, as I mentioned, the first book launch was in Colombia and yes. attended by all the people from El Materno and a very different read, very emotional read, very gratifying in seeing their history being there. Uh, in Colombian circles, um, starting to be very important um, as part of the struggles of why we should be defending these schools, why we should be defending the public orientation in medical training and health training, the public universities that we have. Colombia, unfortunately, has a lot of private medical schools, also out of uh, flexibilization of um, education laws, that now we have way more for-profit um, institutions than, than um, public institutions offering healthcare degrees and medical degrees. Um, so I think the book is, is starting to pick up on that, and I'm, I'm, I'm really curious and looking forward. I think the book has been very important right now. Um, With, uh, that we have in Colombia new government, the first progressive government in 200 years of history. And one of the um, ideas behind the government is to produce a new healthcare reform that is yes. now being debated in the countries. It's very contested because, of course, the insurance companies and the people in Congress don't want to let go of insurance companies. So we don't know yet as, as of this recording what's going to happen with that. But, but the idea is to have a new healthcare reform that, that goes back to validating uh, the public orientation of the healthcare system. Uh, 
and um, among among other things. Um, and so, and, and also one of the main ideas behind the reform is the reopening of the hospitals of yes. El San Juan de Dios and El Materno. So the book is also being part of that larger conversation of what can happen and how this uh, could look like uh, from an activist perspective around the world. Also, the book ends um, with the hope that this history serves other countries and other people struggling against privatization as well. Um, and I think um, there was another book uh, launch, book celebration here in the U.S. at the University of Connecticut, and I and I was very honored that we had three top medical anthropologists responding to the book. Um, yeah, that was that was absolutely exciting, um, and a colleague doing the remarks, the initial remarks, and so it was a, a, another very beautiful celebration with a with an academic tone. Yes. <laughs> so also. It, it, the book now for these audiences, at least, right, it's bringing very interesting discussions in medical anthropology about how we can understand privatization, as we've been discussing. Um, one Latin American scholar, also professor of medical anthropology, did pick up on the epistemologies of care as a valuable term and concept that we could start using uh, in social science studies of health. And the domain of care, the domain of care that the book um, talks at length about, linked with a feminist approach to care, um, was also highlighted as important. So um, it's been interesting. Um, I've been invited to a couple of uh, seminar, graduate seminar, more for people who are being trained in social sciences. That's great. Um, yes, and and so for them, the book means other things as well. Yeah. Um, you mentioned in brief the chapter of religiosity and care, and I'm surprised that that chapter um, is becoming uh, very important for some audiences that think about those links and how we can think about the relationship between religion and, and healthcare. Um, so some people are are really into that particular chapter. Um, some people are into the privatization chapter. There are some people are starting to say that this is a very good example of what the financialization of healthcare means and yeah. could mean. Um, I've heard from other people the ideas about violence and violence against workers as also an important domain, the issues of medical education that we talked about. Um, so it's it's been interesting. There are a couple of book reviews out already. Um, one was a, a, a very nice review from a colleague, and that and there was another review which I invite the audience to read because it was it is a review from um, uh, one of the top public health uh, professors at the Harvard School of Public Health. Wow! And he and he was behind some of the neoliberal reforms. So of course he hated the book completely, uh, oh, wow. and it's uh, it's it's just a fascinating. I invite people to read it because it really it really made me laugh. And it's actually um, for the context of Latin America that we know how violent it is. It's a it's a little worrisome. There is a lot of signaling and and McCarthyism in his remarks. Uh, a little wink to Pinochet's. Uh, great outcomes in healthcare. Uh, so wow. I really had fun reading that review because I thought this kind of response from someone who has been a big supporter to academia of neoliberalism caused this, uh, you know, very highly reputed professor to 
not be able to contain himself and yeah. to just, um, you know, write this, this, um, this very negative review of the book. And uh, to me, it's just fantastic yeah. to, you know, to say that, that in fact it is contributing to something that, um, that, that was missing and that is generating because it, it does cut to the tensions. And, and I think good critical work should cut to the tensions of, of what's happening. Um, you know, what are, what are the main arguments by which something um, is stained or not and, and how we can work through these difficult histories of, you know, pain and violence. And so I think the book, I'm, I'm hoping that the book, you know, continues to receive uh, a lot of attention because I think it's a, it's also a very good way to yeah. honor the history of this hospital and the many protagonists that it has. So I'm, I'm just very happy and I, and I'm very thankful to you also in particular, Camilla, and, and to the network for, for publicizing and making the book more known and hopefully more people get excited and, and and can find it and read it of course of course hopefully it will get more audiences hopefully we'll get more read more discussed so once again thank you very much professor abadia for being here with us and for this wonderful and provocative and informative discussion regarding this book health in ruins the capitalist destruction of medical care at a colombian maternity hospital published by Duke University Press in English, but also in Spanish by a Colombian University Editorial, which is, of course, highly recommended for students and teachers of healthcare professionals and social studies, uh, activist groups and everything. And once again, congratulations on your work and congratulations on it being discussed and the length it has achieved. So once again, thank you very much. Thank you, Emilia. Well, thank you very much, everyone who has listened along this interview to Professor Abadia. My name is Camila Nunez, and this has been another episode for New Books Network. Don't forget to follow us and share this episode. Until next time for more new books and author conversations.